Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If, if Netflix is spending 15 to $20 billion a year on content, HBO is spending $2.5 billion, right? You need, if you're really going to compete with Netflix, you need to like double, triple, quadruple that at least, even if you're flowing in all this other content from the other networks that you own through WarnerMedia. So, you know, it was a matter of how are you allocating the money you're already spending to produce shows for your cable, traditional cable business versus the streaming. So much for AT&T's Hollywood dream. Less than five years after announcing it would shell out more than $100 billion for Time Warner, the parent of HBO, CNN, and a legendary film library, Ma Bell is ditching at a major loss. What went so wrong so quickly? Is there even a right way to integrate a media conglomerate in the age of streaming, cord cutting, and 5G? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SolomonLudwin.com. Join us for a live evening episode with Brad Stone, author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Details on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and fam. Joining me is New York Times media correspondent Edmund Lee. He was very prescient on this uh AT&T foray into kind of Hollywood back in, I think it was announced back in 2016. You were skeptical when you were at Recode. Yep. And uh, I don't know how much cold comfort it is that you were vindicated this week when they've really unwound this <laughs> this deal and, and left tens of billions of dollars wasted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I do feel some vindication. Absolutely. It's, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to take a victory lap on that or anything, but, you know, when it was announced in 2016, it was a total head scratcher because mm. sure. very simply put, you know, AT&T is a distribution company, right? They own pipes, right? Pipes, you know, whether over the air or through the ground, their distribution, that's their muscle. That's what they do. Time Warner is, is a content company. They make, you know, great shows and films. And when you're a content company, when you're a media company, the whole point is to distribute your stuff as widely as possible. So you don't want to sort of, you know, make it exclusive to any one platform or any one distributor. So in other words, if you're going to sell HBO to Comcast, you also have to sell it to Charter or Verizon's TV service or whomever, because ultimately, the more subscribers you have, the more money you make. And that's the business that they're in. So AT&T, you know, it has a distribution business. It sells television. It sells mobile service. What are they getting out of this exactly, right? They're just taking over another business that they'll have to sell or license that stuff to their competitors, you know, like whether it's Verizon or T-Mobile or anyone else. So it just was a head scratcher from the start. And when I looked at the press release, they basically cited two reasons for the deal, which was targeted advertising, you know, which is all the rage and online video. And I'm thinking, okay, th those aren't bad things to try to like make a business out of, but 
did you really need to spend $100 billion to do that? Like, couldn't you have just done a partnership or couldn't you have just done some kind of a, a business deal uh, instead of just buying it outright? And and that was and that was my initial take. That was that was my first sort of skepticism. Some of us old timers, Edmund, think back to the the worst deal ever struck was AOL Time Warner at the turn of the century. Oh yeah, still <laughs> it's still number one. But I again, think. it yeah. was it's it was Time worst. Warner involved, and 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 books written and essays written and and so much ink dumped on kind of the hubris that went into this, the magical thinking, and then the culture clashes from yes. a kind of a largely a dial up internet company and. A media company that had magazines, that had CNN, that had Roadrunner Cable, and that was unwound in the dot-com bust. But what's interesting is this is being unwound in a, in a real risk-on period where there's a, a feeding frenzy for content. It's a real golden age for all sorts of media, podcasts, you know, going off to Substack. You think CNN is suddenly really valuable, which you know, AT&T owned through this. And HBO Max, yep. it could do a better job. It could have a less confusing uh, uh, tier of subscriptions, yes. but it's still looked at as one of the gold standards in this streaming war, right? There's HBO, there's Disney. And so I step back from this and I'm wondering, is there something peculiar, something haunted, almost you know, Friday the 13th Camp Crystal Lake about Time Warner? <laughs> That's actually a great way of framing it. Um you know, it feels a little bit like a hot potato, right? In that in that sense. Didn't work out with AOL. And, you know, when Jeff Bukas, who was during that AOL deal, Jeff Bukas was just some guy who ran HBO, right? And he he never liked that deal. When he got elevated to run that full company, he's like, I'm unwinding this whole thing. He started selling everything off. He sold off, spun off AOL, spun off the Time Warner cable business. It was a huge conglomerate, right? He sold Time Inc., and he was ultimately looking to sell the company itself, right? And, you know, he found a willing buyer in AT&T. And I think, you know, the, is there a curse on Time Warner? It's, it was the original media conglomerate, right? And I think it really speaks to sometimes bigger really isn't better, right? Like, ultimately, what are you really doing? You're just sort of glomming on, on business after business. Is there a real... You know, this is the unfortunate term synergy, right? Synergy means like, does does one plus one equal two point one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like by adding this, you're are you getting a fraction extra out of it? And I I don't think they did. You know, I don't think Time Warner even before AOL bought it did, and certainly not after AOL bought it, and certainly not after AT and T bought it, right? So, um, it's just structurally those kinds of things just never really work. Here's my read on this, Edmund, <clears throat> and correct me if I'm mistaken. This was actually not the AT&T that everybody grew up with, the Ma Bell. That was broken right, up right. in the early 80s and this was one of the prodigal baby bells. It was Southwestern yes. Bell, Pac Southwest Bell. Southwest Bell, right, it exactly. Bought Bell South and then AT&T Wireless and then it decided that the AT&T name had more goodwill. And uh, these guys had had hiked their dividend for 34 years. They were a dividend aristocrat. There's a significant constituency at this Dallas-based company to you know pay widows and orphans, pay a fat dividend. But these guys from Texas also wanted to go deep into Hollywood and own HBO and the Warner Brothers studio and everything else that was entailed with TNT and TBS Sports and CNN. I thought that the the thinking of it was not just from a kind of emerging distribution and content, but because AT and T Wireless was their was their main base of distribution, that they were going to maybe use HBO Max as a way to get subscribers, more subscribers entrenched to AT and T Wireless. Because as you wrote, these guys don't really get new subscribers; they just steal them from one another. So 
if you're going to have a bundle, right. it's no longer the cable bundle. It's now the wireless bundle. I want to throw in maybe Major League Baseball or Netflix or Hulu. But again, like with AOL Time Warner, I never saw any follow through from that. I never saw them market, you know, sign up for AT&T wireless 5G in certain areas and get HBO Max for free. Uh, it wasn't used yeah. as a customer acquisition or retention tool. I mean, so it's almost like they defined the strategy after the fact, right? And they, they defined it as a retention tool, right? As, as you said, uh, and as we reported, right, like the, the, the mobile market is saturated, meaning everyone who wants a cell phone already has one, right? So now if AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, they're just trying to steal customers away from each other. So AT&T is thinking, well, if I can offer my best customers the highest paying tier rate, whatever, whoever they are, free HBO Max, then they might not leave, right? I'll keep them. So it was a retention tool. And for every, you know, for every kind of 0.1% that I keep from churning out, it's worth, you know, X billion dollars or ever, however many millions or hundreds of millions of dollars that they want to calculate. So, I mean, it's all fuzzy math for them, but that's sort of the thinking. The skeptical take on why they did this deal and the DirecTV deal, which that was another failed deal, right? Because they bought DirecTV just a few years before. The skeptical thinking is, as you pointed out, like AT&T is a dividend company, right? People, uh, shareholders buy AT&T because it's got this great dividend. And that's, is a value company. It has so much cash. The thing of it is, is that they can't just borrow money to then pay a dividend, right? They just, it just doesn't look good. So how about instead of borrowing money to pay a dividend, I'll borrow money, buy a company, and then pay the dividend, right? So that DirecTV, which actually, when they bought it, was spitting off a lot of cash, and Time Warner, which is also spitting off a lot of cash, was just sort of like a conduit, right, to increase their dividend or to maintain their dividend while also borrowing money to get it started, right? So that's the skeptical read. And that they- I just got to, you got to tip whatever banker kind of convinced them of this deal. Whoever yes. Jeff Bukas and Time Warner had, whatever creative magical thinking was in that pitch book. Yes. I mean, yes. This, this, is, this is really unbelievable to me to say you need to lever up and become the most heavily indebted non-financial company. I mean, what was it, 150 yeah. billion in debt? Yeah. And what you are going to do is siphon off the cash flows of the Time Warner business to service this greater debt load, but that's also stealing from one child uh, to to give to yep. another. So the dividend constituency or the debt service constituency. Meanwhile, HBO is in this arms race with Netflix and Disney Plus and all these other streamers out there that are, you know, Netflix was spending what, $20 billion on content? Yeah. And HBO was frustrated it couldn't it couldn't keep up in the arms race because the parent was being stingy with it. Is that a correct read? Yeah, no, that's exactly right, right? Because you know, not just HBO, but all the traditional media businesses, right? Uh, whether it's HBO or CBS or, you know, all the cable networks, like they were faced with this dilemma, right? They were losing customers because people were cutting the cord, but they were still making fat profits. Netflix, on the other hand, they were gaining subscribers like crazy, but they were actually burning a lot of cash, right? They were borrowing money to fund content, spend 15, 20 billion dollars a year on content to get more subscribers. And the cable guys, the traditional media guys were sort of faced with this dilemma of like, well, why would I want to give up the fat profits here, even though it's a declining business, to then put money into a money losing streaming thing? And but that's what's happening now, right? Disney made that plunge to 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 decide, you know what? We're it's, a, it's almost a leap of faith, it, isn't it? Is. it? That you're it gonna is. say to your shareholders, I'm not gonna be a profit-minded company. In fact, I'm gonna starve traditional, you know, cable fat pipe profits to build this loss-leading streaming business until I have significant market share and pricing power. Not unlike how Netflix has 
the, the Netflix playbook for the past 10 years. Exactly. And I think that was HBO's dilemma, which was, well, you know, and they were locked into the, these contracts with cable companies. So if they go direct to consumer, meaning to sell it on their own, cable guys are like, wait a minute, you're cutting me out. You're going over me. So can't, you know, stop doing that. And so that's why it took them so long to sort of make this leap. But they made it. And it did happen under AT&T. It was they started before AT&T. But then once AT&T bought it, they kind of really kind of pushed that forward. So I guess that credit that much to AT&T, but they just didn't spend the proper money, right? If, if Netflix is spending 15 to $20 billion a year on content, HBO is spending two and a half billion, right? You need, if you're really going to compete with Netflix, you need to like double, triple, quadruple that at least, even if you're flowing in all this other content from the other networks that you own through WarnerMedia. So, you know, it was a matter of how are you allocating the money you're already spending to produce shows for your cable, traditional cable business versus the streaming. And by the way, that's the dilemma that this new entity, this Discovery Warner Media entity, once that gets done by next year, that's a dilemma they're going to face. David Zaslav, who's going to run this new company, you know, he's talking they're, they spend 20 billion a year on content together, both these companies, but he wouldn't say exactly how he's going to allocate that money. How much of that is going to go towards their traditional cable business, which is still profitable? And how much are they going to invest in their streaming business, which is not profitable, right? So I'm really curious to see which way he goes, if he's going to take the big leap of faith that you talked about, or he's just going to, you know what, they're still profitable over here, so I'm going to still do the cable thing. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Edmund Lee's media reporter at the New York Times. He's quite prescient on his skepticism toward this AT&T and uh, used to be called Time Warner mega merger, which was announced, I believe, what was back in, in, in late 2016 and yep. took a while to consummate because the government actually the government could have done a favor and, and blocked it for antitrust reason <laughs> right. and saved AT&T shareholders a lot of money. Uh, I remember you were previously at Recode where you were skeptical about this and you you covered uh, this, this, this old siren call of the content distribution mega marriage back when we were at Bloomberg together. Yeah. Talk to me about Comcast, which is a rival. Has it been the only player that has kind of nominally successfully merged mega distribution and mega content. Of course, Comcast owns NBC Universal. Right. So that is the one exception, I would say, right? Sort of this, what they call vertical integration, right? You've got Comcast, which owns pipes. It's a distribution company and NBC Universal, which is makes content. And, you know, it's the one successful sort of vertical integration marriage, if you want to call it. But it's not because one plus one mm. equals like two point whatever. It's really just because, you know, Brian Roberts, who, who runs Comcast, who his father started the company, you know, he's been pretty shrewd about letting NBC Universal be NBC Universal. What does that mean? Like letting it be a media company, you know, let it sort of operate on its own sort of and let the cable company operate on its own. So it's really almost like it's a, a portfolio, right, where you've got this one business over here, we manage that well, and another business over here, and we manage that well. And they both do well, but not because they're part of the same company necessarily. More recently, though, they have been trying to take advantage of, again, this targeted advertising idea. So on the internet, ads follow you around. That's kind of going away now because of the whole privacy concerns. But they're thinking about how do we do that on television, right? So when you tune into your TV, is there a way for me to show you a different ad than your neighbor, even though you're watching the same program? Because advertiser wants to reach, you know, males 40 up for this one product or, you know, women 25 to, to 35 for this other product. So that they're still experimenting with. And the fact that they own pipes on one end and content on the other might allow them to sort of unlock that value. But 
you know, they've been talking about that for years and hasn't quite come to fruition. So again, it's just that they're two well-managed companies, but managed separately, not necessarily as some kind of special combination. And an interesting footnote on this is if I'd taken you back to the year 2000, the former Bell Atlantic, which was rechristened Verizon, ended up acquiring AOL and Yahoo uh, for for something like $10 billion and spitting them out recently, spitting them back out for $5 billion because it's dipping its toes into the 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 true content waters didn't really work for it. Right. So there seems to be this this wave back to pure plays where your pure play mega content company like a Disney, uh, you know, which has network television, right. which has ESPN, which has had its travails, but now the crown jewel is Disney Plus, and everybody has to have it for you know the library for their kids, and and you have Netflix, which is the original gangster on right. this. So go ahead. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think look, the Verizon deal was sort of another kind of escapade that that failed because it was an instance of, you know, a, a distribution company not really understanding how content works. And when they first did the deal, the reason was again, Verizon, like AT&T, was how try to differentiate itself from its competitors. So what can we offer on our phones that AT&T can't, right? So they're thinking video, TV, something like that. And then it's like, well, you know, we can sort of cut deals and be our own little distributor and people can watch, you know, HBO and CNN and ESPN on their phones the way that they do on their TVs through, say, something like Comcast. The problem that they faced is that, you know, they wouldn't, the networks wouldn't license them their their channels without knowing how many people were watching, right? There was no Nielsen rating on mobile phones. So that's when they approached AOL and said, hey, like you have this great ad technology, can we use it? And Tim Armstrong, who was head of AOL at the time, said, well, yeah, you can. We could cut a deal. But you know what's actually better? Why don't you just buy us? Right? So Tim Armstrong kind of got one over on them in this way and basically had them buy them just so that they could do this ad tech part of the deal. And then after, shortly after that, Tim Armstrong convinced Verizon execs, hey, you know what? We need more eyeballs. We need more ad tech. Let's go buy Yahoo, which he's been wanting to buy forever. So the Verizon's like, fine, here's more money. <laughs> they bought Yahoo, right? And they had this big content machine, all these eyeballs, all this ad tech, and it still didn't yield anything, right? It, it turned into this, they created this bizarre product for Verizon phones that like, that no one watched. It just didn't work. And so again, it, it just came down to, do you have the expertise or do you not have the expertise? They didn't have the expertise. And frankly, neither did AT&T. And I think mm. that's ultimately what sunk it here as well. What happens to the incumbents in wireless? I mean, where there used to be maybe four or five, the old, you know, voice stream, Deutsche Telekom and everything. It's now AT&T right. Wireless, shorn of this kind of media escapade. Verizon, uh, the old Bell Atlantic, which was also acquisitive. It has MCI WorldCom and other legacy assets, but it just kicked away AOL and Yahoo. And you have T-Mobile, which successfully merged right. with Sprint in the past. AT&T's made a pass at T-Mobile and was thwarted by regulators. So let's suppose, yeah, in, in fact, they all become pure play 5G aspiring wireless companies now. So here's a, here's a kind of wonky question for you. If they're 5G and content is, you know, distribution wireless data is too cheap to meter at that point, aren't they going to need content again to differentiate themselves, to steal customers away? So great point. They're, they're still facing market saturation. The race, though, first is who's got the better 5G network. I think it, it looks like T-Mobile is, is sort of might be winning that race right now. But once 5G is all built up and they all have more or less the same kind of service, yes, how do I differentiate? Well, look, T-Mobile never did that kind of big media deal like Verizon or, or AT&T did. Instead, what they did was 
you know what? They called up Disney and said, hey, can we like do a deal where we can give Disney Plus free to our subscribers for the first year? Something like that. Maybe some discount after that. In other words, a partnership, right? And I think that's that was just the smarter play, right? You don't have to spend $100 billion to get something that's kind of exclusive to you or is sort of a nice add-on for your customers. So I see more of those types of deals in the future as opposed to some crazy big content play. And, you know, I think there's also, they're facing competition from the cable companies too. So like Charter and Comcast, they sell wireless service. The funny thing about how that works though, is that what they're really doing is that they're just renting Verizon's cell lines and just selling the service themselves and, you know, taking whatever small margin they can against it. It's a way for them, it's defensively to kind of keep their customers from from going elsewhere and to sell them more products. So the wireless guys are actually, they it's a huge uphill battle. Capital intensive 5G build out, stealing customers away from each other and now competing against cable companies. And right? let's not so, forget Verizon itself had that expensive fiber build out for Fios. I mean, a lot of cities now are this duopoly between Comcast and Verizon Fios. I'm exactly. not convinced that Verizon is out there marketing Fios maybe as much as it used to, but uh, what used to be the triple play of, you know, your cable company would say telephone, video, and internet is now kind of bordering into this uh, quadruple play where it's landline, wireless, telephone, and internet. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's everyone's trying to create their own bundle around that, right? And I think the wireless guys, they're going to have a hard time going forward. Uh, I mean, they still, they're huge balance sheets, lots of cash that comes in. Uh, you can't not have mobile service, right? That's sort of their, that's the the one moat. But again, now it just comes down to switching costs, right? People are switching back and forth because now T-Mobile has this new deal or Verizon has this other deal or AT&T is offering something. So it's going to keep going round and round. And until they figure that out, it's it's going to be very bloody for them. And, you know, at the end of the day, they might become targets themselves, strangely, right? I don't know the government would allow that, but, you know, create even bigger companies where you might have a cable company owning a wireless company. But, you know, that, that, uh, that would be a much more difficult pill to swallow. Well, what what happens to some of the 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 orphans in this case? Like I'm thinking of Paramount, I forget what it's even called at this point. Uh you know, CBS Viacom Paramount <laughs> Viacom, it's CBS, streaming. Right, exactly. What happened to right? that? Right, there are all these other there are all these I, I I lost track because we're in this era of login fatigue where Hulu is now entirely owned by Disney and right. uh, you have HBO Max, you have uh, Showtime which is a I don't know if that's going to be merged with the Viacom product. And you even have Amazon making a run at MGM's film archives. Are you going to yes, see another they're... wave of, of content mega consolidation? So the big picture here is this, is what we're seeing is the, the media companies are consolidating amongst themselves, right? We had uh, the Fox Disney deal, uh, AT&T did Time Warner, but now they've divested and Time Warner is now with Discovery. So what's happening now is that the media guys are realizing they're still not big enough, right? So Viacom CBS, which is sort of the smallest of the big sort of media conglomerates, the pure play media conglomerates, they're a target. They're a definite target. Now, that could mean Comcast, you know, goes after Viacom CBS. It could also mean, and here's what's interesting, is that this new Warner Discovery entity that once that gets closed next year, that could either be a buyer or a seller right? Um, they could go after Viacom CBS or they could end up being bought by Comcast themselves, right? So- Wow. You truly need a program to kind of remember all the players. You really do, right? And, and you get asked this a lot. In the end, aren't you just reinventing the cable dial, like the curation where I, I pay a Comcast exactly. or Charter or Cox or the old Time Warner cable to pay for a predetermined 
300 channel bundle for me. By the time you you subscribe to all these individual streamers and your Wi-Fi plan, and maybe it's a supreme Wi-Fi plan so you can have enough bandwidth for the kids' Zoom school and everything, you're paying more than your original cable bill. Exactly. And that and that's and that and then you're paying more as a consumer, but what's what's weird is that the streamers at the other end, they're they're not making as much money as they used to. So it's weird. It's like you're paying more and the companies are not getting as rich necessarily. And so I think the economics are really, really screwy now, right? And I think streaming economics will have to sort of be revised in some form. And we're seeing it now, right? Netflix raises its prices every about every 18 months or so, right? Disney just re- recently raised its price. So they realize it's just they can't sustain that low price for too long and and still be a business. So you're going to get to a point where, you know what, I can only afford three streaming services at the most that you know each household will figure out. And then it just becomes a fight for like third place. And and a lot of these smaller media companies, uh, they're going to have to be bought or stop existing. right? Mm-hmm. And that's the chess match that's going to happen over the next 18 to 24 months. All of these guys, all the media guys, they keep wishing that Apple would buy them or Amazon <laughs> would buy them and, or Facebook even. But of all the tech companies, the only one that I think has any real appetite for media is Amazon. Mm. They're the only ones that I think Jeff Bezos, on a very personal level, actually really likes media. And I think beyond just the numbers, beyond just the math, beyond just sort of the financial analysis of it, I think he has in his heart like this desire to be a big media baron in some ways. And I think he might do a deal where he buys Viacom CBS. Let's you, see, you, you know, covered he might him buy as, MGM you, and then... Well, you, know. you covered him as the owner of the Washington Post, richest man on the planet, yep. buys the Washington yep. Post for $200 million or so, Trump change. Uh, Amazon yep. has largely used its media investments and, I don't know, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel's and Amazon Prime Video for retention and acquisition of prime customers. And And there have been things written, I think, in the journal and elsewhere about a culture clash of kind of bean counters and stinginess, much like yep. what you saw with AT&T and Warner Brothers and Amazon. And, you know, there are the pleplers of the world. And then there are the the disciplined uh, uh, spreadsheet people and write everything in a one page bulleted statement. It's, it, again, it goes back to the original conversation we have. These are very difficult cultures to merge. And to that end, you know, in the few minutes we have left with you, Edmund, uh, you get asked about CNN a lot. And I always thought that AT&T would have divested CNN. You had much more of a conservative yeah. culture. It was a lightning rod for former President Trump, who made them a bet noir every day in every press conference and harassed CNN reporters and the press gaggle. I, I thought that it was doing, it was getting some of its highest ratings and throwing off some of its highest cash flow. And it's still indispensable to the cable dial. You, you, you have to have CNN there so it can charge significant rents in doing that. But why does it still fit in at a, a, a major media conglomerate like uh, a Warner Brothers, even a Warner Discovery? So, no, CNN is a, a conundrum in a lot of ways, right? It, it could be argued that Trump's Justice Department tried to block the AT&T Time Warner deal simply because of CNN, right? That, <laughs> I think a lot of people sort of uh, wouldn't, wouldn't disagree with that too much. So despite that there being that kind of culture clash between AT&T and, and Time Warner, you know, CNN had its best years under Trump, you know, had its best sort of ratings, had its best sort of ad, ad deals under Trump. So in that way, it was good for the company ultimately. But, you know, news business is always going to be a weird business for any, any company to own, right? Because even though you, it's about eyeballs, even though it's about attracting as much attention as possible, it's a lightning rod. It always is. And you know, you can't bean count the news ultimately. Sometimes you just got to spend to make the news happen or to cover the news properly. And 
no amount of sort of math really sort of justifies all, all the time, like why this versus that. And, you know, hopefully under discovery, under David Zaslav, you know, that they'll, he, he's not really a news guy. That's not necessarily his background, though. He did work at NBC for many, many years. You know, he says he wants to continue to support it, but it's always going to be a thorny thing for any company to own the way that Fox News is. But guess what? Rupert Murdoch couldn't care less about that. He likes the way Fox News is. So unless the owner is sort of willing to sort of go along with that, be part of that culture, I guess, um, it's going to be a hard thing to to manage and own. Edmund, finally, uh, you know, let, let's throw another nasty metaphor at you with all this blood in the water from shareholder wealth destruction and all the bankers (laughs) were paid and and AT&T, SBC, whatever you want to call it for the first time in 34 years, cut its dividend. And so the stock is tanked in the wake of this news. Uh, Wall Street really wasn't celebrating it. There is blood in the water and blood in the water attracts other thrashing sharks and barracudas and orcas. Do you think somebody comes in and picks off Warner HBO or Discovery or or there's another kind of a dark like a piece horse of it, right? Um, look, I think there was this idea that like, well, Comcast might try to kind of nose their way into this this Warner Discovery deal, maybe try to steal off a piece of it, like say HBO. Mm. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think if Comcast really wants it, they're going to want real size ultimately, and they wouldn't just go for a piece; they'd go for the whole thing, right? So Brian Roberts, who runs Comcast, who he sees himself, his role, not necessarily as CEO, but as like the, the M&A guy, like that's his real specialty. He's not going to go for like a small deal. He'll go for a big deal. Right. And he'll, he'll buy it his time. He'll wait. And, you know, who knows? Six months after the, the Warner Discovery deal closes, he could he could make a play for that whole thing. And, you know, that that if you're a betting man, that that might be something. I'm not going to lie. In the interest of full disclosure, I will tell you that Edmund Lee is one of my favorite bylines uh, out there. You could look at my Twitter timeline for the past 10 years or so. Your stuff is just good and it's granular and you're curious and you're skeptical as you were with this deal back when you were at Recode. Of course, that the AT&T Time Warner mega merger was just unwound and you've been writing about it left and right. Sir, I I love your stuff. You're always welcome to come back on this show. Very kind. Very kind. That means a lot coming from you. And this was a lot of fun and happy to do it again. Edmund Lee of The New York Times. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure airs on NPR One, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com, and Spotify. You could catch us on Radio Arlington. You can catch us in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Southern California, Holler if you'd like to have me on your air, fulldradio.com. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the media consolidation dream deferred. AT&T wasted tens of billions of dollars on this abortive acquisition of, of the Warner Media Empire, what with HBO and Warner Brothers Studios. Joining us is Michael Morris of Guggenheim Partners, a veteran media analyst. He and I talked about this deal uh, several years ago. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm all right. Uh, is there something Game of Thrones metaphor-like about, I don't know, the siren song or pursuing media much to your own peril if you're, old, if you're an old kind of stodgy conglomerate or, you know, your Ma Bell paying dividends to widows and orphans and what persuaded these guys in Dallas to go after HBO and the egos and the significant budgets and spending and, and, and panache of Hollywood? Man, that's I like that question. I hadn't thought about it from a sort of Game of Thrones perspective before, but you have your your houses, your your geographies, your land grab, and then things things kind of gone wrong. So I, I like I, I like that analogy. I think um 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I re-listened to our podcast from a couple years ago last night, and and we were questioning this acquisition at the time. And I, I just think that there's this historical sort of thought that you can vertically integrate these distribution companies with these content companies that somehow was going to make them better. But it never really held water for me, quite honestly. Uh, I think that you had the same questions. I think that when you own content production, especially in this age when there's so much distribution, whether it's TV and digital, you have to be willing to invest and you have to be willing to partner with businesses that might be competitors on, on the other side of the house. And, you know, I, I think ultimately that's that's kind of what this came down to. If the old Time Warner Media assets really wanted to compete with Disney and Netflix, they had to be willing to spend. And I think that AT&T, which really pursues excellence and connectivity and wireless businesses, you know, didn't didn't make as much sense for them to to make those investments. So it's a little bizarre in that AT&T pretty much wanted to be known as AT&T Wireless. It really does not promote the landline business much anymore. This is an old, as we discussed earlier, it's as a regional bell that was super acquisitive and acquired other ones and kind of reconstituted something approximating the Ma Bell of the early 80s or the late 70s, but it also bought DirecTV, the satellite provider. And that was a disastrous foray. I think it bought it in 2015 at the top of, of, of the pay TV market, and then people started cutting the cord. It also has, I believe, U-verse cable in certain markets. You can get a cable-type connection. And it had this wireless footprint. So if I were looking at this years ago, just a few years ago, and you've been covering this industry for a while, wouldn't that kind of been a dream distribution footprint? I have all of this wireless that's ubiquitous, and we're talking about 5G. I have cable, I have satellite, and then you give me this premium content library with HBO and Warner Brothers and CNN, and it didn't work. No. No, it didn't work, or or at least uh, depending on how you want to define it didn't work, it didn't work in the sense that they've decided to unwind what they did. Right. Uh, maybe we'd question this uh, similar decision makers that made those decisions in the first place. So whether or not something works is a, a little bit subjective. But I think the problem is that the changes in technology, uh, and I, I mentioned this last time, has really just democratized a lot of things that used to be limited by structure. And the best example I can give is this concept that you had to use to get a cable bundle if you wanted to watch anything on TV, right? right? right. And starting around 2004, 2005, you'd watch a bunch of stuff on, on your computer. It was, it's less expensive and, and it's only gotten better. And so I think AT&T probably just had too many irons in the fire across a number of, of, of places and didn't really use, as far as I can tell, DirecTV to the, that install base that they already had of something like 26 million homes, if I remember correctly, to really push uh, and maybe even discount the wireless service to, you know, capture as many of those homes as they could. I thought that would be the strategy. It didn't really feel like that's the direction they went. Now, this might get a little wonky, but I wonder also if AT&T management uh, was thinking at the time, we want to maybe be valued more like one of these media companies that's encouraged to spend and lose money in the interim. I'm thinking of Netflix, which incurred lots of red ink and cash burn uh, to turn itself into this gigantic studio, this colossus out of you know, what was my first interacted with Netflix uh, nearly 20 years ago, they were mailing me DVDs. I'm thinking about Disney, which has ESPN, the theme parks, 
all of these businesses that were shut down in the pandemic and, and the advertising business tanked, but the market was lauding it because it was successfully getting people to sign up for Disney Plus, which is losing money in the near term, but the stock was soaring because it Wall Street was impressed that these guys got the future. I wonder if AT&T management is thinking, gosh, you know, we're kind of cursed here because you have we we have this demand to pay out billions and billions in dividends and a, a fat dividend every year and that's going to starve us, but maybe we can be recognized at the market and given a new premium if we maybe transmogrify into a shiny expensive media conglomerate. But but Michael, they didn't want to spend on content as much as Netflix or Disney did. Yeah, I think it's just such a fallacy to think that you can change to chase valuation multiple. I, I just, you know, I don't believe in that. Now, people may disagree. This is certainly my opinion. But first of all, you're going to pay the market multiple for what the business is up front. Okay. So you're not getting any discounts based on what the market can currently see. And then you have to show how you can do it better than what was implied in that valuation. I, I remember, you know, a long time ago, I was in business school being warned about this. And the, the, the quick anecdote is, you know, you have this box manufacturer and it has a certain valuation and it's a low valuation because like, they make cardboard boxes and they're putting computers in these boxes and they see this high multiple on the computers and they're like, hey, you know what? That's the business we should be in. Look at how high their multiple is, right? But you can't just go from being a box manufacturer to a computer maker, right? <laughs> to get the higher multiple. So I, I just think it's, um, you see it a lot, you see it across industries. But I think chasing multiple is the mistake. I think pursuing excellence in something that you do well and have a competitive advantage is, is what to do. But sometimes management teams lose sight. And I got to ask you, what is, what is it about these mega mergers and their shareholder money that's wasted? In this case, you had AT&T take out so much debt that it became, I think, the most indebted non-financial company in the United States. And that, that debt load just choked it. And it's largely getting out of it uh, to get a cash infusion and an equity stake to pay down that debt. But why aren't these former CEOs or these former boards taken to task for wasting so much money? I mean, even Verizon's foray into AOL and Yahoo, which I think initially it was a price tag of a total of $10 billion, it ends up selling it for close to $5 billion. Is that just funny money or monopoly money? I mean, in this case, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars lost with AT&T. But I I, I wonder what what is that money? Where does it come from? Clearly, the the former you know CEO of Time Warner got paid, and then some. The bankers got paid, the attorneys, and then what? Shareholders? Was this just theoretical money that was transacted? I don't understand it. Um. Well, I, I so first, I I don't want to speak like specifically to any one transaction with respect to this thought because there are a lot of things about it I don't necessarily know. But I I think you do have to remember that these management teams and these boards have to take some risk when you're talking about strategic positioning and competition, okay? So if an inherent in taking that risk, things aren't always going to work. And I, I think that uh, in the grand scheme of things as, as shareholders and investors, you do want management teams to use their expertise to say, take on some risks that have uh, high odds of success and, and high odds of becoming uh, a great return on invested capital projects. At the same time, you have to sort of trust that the system that we have can sort of uh, discern between a failed attempt that is going to happen inherent in there and sort of malpractice in some way, if you will. Uh, and so, you know, you do see shareholder lawsuits a lot of times in these cases and, and, and they play out in different ways. So 
The bottom line to me, I think you still want quality management teams to take some risk on things. And sometimes those things aren't going to work. When you're talking about something of this size, um, it's pretty big pill uh, to swallow for something that, that, that maybe was questionable up front. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Michael Moore as a media and internet analyst at Guggenheim Partners. Sir, help me update the dance card here. We're already seeing Amazon is approaching uh, MGM, the venerable studio and library for maybe upward of a $9 billion acquisition. That's chump change for a company like Amazon. I'm sure clients are calling you left and right and saying who gets shacked up with, who stays, you know, who I don't know, to continue the metaphor, who's a wallflower, who's watching everybody else dance. I mean, is this going to stoke another round of M&A? I think that you probably see some more consolidation going forward. I don't know that that mega merger, next mega merger is out there. You have uh, a lot of speculation about that topic right now. I was just reading a Business Insider article this morning. Certainly, uh, there was a CNBC article about this a couple of days ago. So this isn't me necessarily breaking ground on how people are uh, aligning that dance card. But there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Ownership of broadcast assets creates a bit of a challenge. So Comcast owns the NBC broadcast assets. Viacom owns CBS. You have Fox and you have Disney with the ABC assets. And structurally, these companies are unable to, from a regulatory perspective, combine their TV station groups or their broadcast TV network businesses. So that's one of the, the sort of like gating factors to having another one of these big uh, consolidation rounds uh, that, that people need to consider. You know, from there, I think that we're a year out from, from this uh, sort of AT&T discovery deal closing. I do think that, that if it is successfully closed, which we believe it will be, you kind of have three really big players at that point in Disney, Netflix, and this Discovery Warner media business. And I think Comcast, Viacom, CBS really need to consider what they need to do uh, in order to be competitive within that dynamic. And then, of course, you mentioned Amazon, you have Apple, you have a couple of other companies that seem to have you know, one foot in this area, but also such tremendous financial means to to expand if they choose. Uh, yeah, there's still some opportunity for some some things to shift here. Michael, what is the 5G enabled world going to look like? I mean, when let's say if and when all this stuff is rolled out successfully by AT and T Wireless, T Mobile, Sprint, and Verizon, the three kind of remaining national wireless providers. Are they? Are we going to just not worry about Wi-Fi connections anymore? Are we just going to be streaming this stuff over ultra-fast, ubiquitous connections, watching it in the car, watching it, uh, you know, it, while we're tailgating? Uh, does that bring power back to the kind of the wireless incumbents? Um, possibly. So I, I think we still seem somewhat far away from practical application of five G. It's it's almost a case where the consumer is so much more attuned to their wireless service now than they were. Uh, even five or six years ago, like a 4G cycle where it's become this marketing push well in advance of it being a practical push. And I, I would also say that as it stands right now, the consumer is not sitting there in a lot of cases where they're like, gosh, I really wish I had a better sort of wireless connection. I'm, I'm, I'm having this inferior experience right now. 5G, please come save me. No, the, the couple places where, where it seems like it's going to be most impactful are on things like commerce and, and, and autonomous driving and, and things like that, where that low latency real-time connectivity can really make something safer, more efficient. That's like a big leap forward. And I think that the difference between having to have uh, a fiber connection all the way to the home 
versus having maybe a small cell 5G tower in the area to offer the, the sort of high-level connectivity that you get right now through your fiber connection is compelling. But really, people are getting a gig of speed at home through their fiber wired and Wi-Fi connections. I'm not sure that there's a massive incremental commercial step up for the consumer. And I think that that you know, could lead to fiber still being the first wave of, of uh, or the next sort of incremental wave of investment rather than this uh, more intense 5G buildup. Really? So people still digging up streets and laying down fiber? I mean, Verizon, we know, is, has done that quite a bit at quite a price tag. I, if you go back to the, the, this AT&T um, uh, conference call regarding discovery, they're talking about passing more homes with fiber. So that, that is an investment for them. So that's a little paradoxical because it is technically a landline type business where everything was supposed to be wireless. And in the ether, fiber is in, is intensive. It's capital intensive. We know again Verizon, which came out several years ago and said that we want to roll out the you know the the, the, the FiOS package, this ultra fast connections. Because as you know, there's still tremendous dissatisfaction with the cable providers, especially after all this time of work from home and Zoom calls and over dependency on that one fat pipe coming in and out of the house uh, that gets you know transferred into the Wi-Fi signal that you're splitting with the kids. So I'm wondering really how this stuff plays out. If if it's you really think that they're going to double down on fiber again, and what constitutes you know a cable company versus a wireless company? AT and T had a massive satellite provider as well, and it's it's kind of ditching out of that. But you're saying that it's going to double down on the wireline business? Um. Well, it's it's pretty basic math, right? Like you you can do the math on the cost to pass a home with fiber and you know the lifetime value of the customer that you're going to get when you pass that home and then you can also do the math on building out 5g network keeping in mind that even those 5g small cells get into fiber at some point right everything has to go through fiber at some point Mm. so when you think about the existing technology you think about the customer acquisition uh the cost to lay the fiber the cost from a marketing perspective and then the lifetime value of that customer, I think that uh, expanding fiber footprint still has uh, a lot of runway ahead of it. And I got to ask you, uh, sports, I think about my relationships with content right now and the Spotify subscription. I think about Apple TV Plus, uh, Netflix, you know, Disney Plus for the kids. I'm also uh, really enthralled to a handful of teams, you know, the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Miami Dolphins, the Hurricanes. And there is pricing power there that a lot of these franchises have now ceded to these massive media networks, such as TBS and TNT and ESPN. Uh, That is really confusing in that uh, we're all in the process of cutting the cord, but the one thing that's kind of maybe keeping us paying for the cable package and paying for, say, you know, fat ESPN or a big reason why TBS and TNT are valuable to Warner is live sports, that that's something that you can't... uh, you know, skip ads or, or cut the cord on. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we, we have a saying that we've used for quite a long time, and that's that the bundle is the sports tier. Okay. And while the, these new, the launch of new services continues to sort of fragment audiences from, from that, that period of time when the bundle was the only choice. So if you don't care about sports, you generally you can find what you want. Uh, specifically or an adequate substitute for what you want somewhere else without paying for, for argument's sake, let's call it an $80 bundle, Mm. right? If you want all the sports, 
um, even if you want most of the sports and definitely the sports that matter, that $80 price point is the entry fee to having, having that content. And so I, I would point to this uh, recent agreement that the NFL struck, which was really uh, an extension of the prior agreement. When you look at who the partners were, there were some, some changes, right? Amazon took a bigger piece of one package, but generally speaking, Fox, Disney, CBS, Comcast, each signed a major deal. In aggregate, they doubled the amount of spending that they're going to do with the NFL. But the NFL didn't make the mistake of concentrating with just one partner. So the top of funnel for what consumer pays, if they want all that NFL content across those four providers, they still need to get the bundle to get all those games. More of the economics just go to NFL. Do you get asked by clients, by institutions, by individual investors, uh, by CEOs about virtual reality in sports? I'm thinking about how clutch that would have been in the pandemic when we're watching you know, the NBA in the bubble in Orlando. How much I would have paid to see my Lakers you know, on a VR headset from my living room with the kind of live-like experience. I imagine there must be pricing power in that. It, it's interesting. I think that there are a couple, well, there, there are probably many advances that technology is going to provide us uh, a, a, that will uh, sort of enhance the experience. And you know, the NBA in particular, I feel like they're very focused on this, this moving forward, giving fans different camera angles, giving fans the ability to focus on a single player during the game. Um, starting to provide more statistics on the players during the games and the, the sports gaming, this sort of proliferation of state by state legalization of sports gambling is is also providing uh, that with a tailwind, uh, right. you know, a tailwind there. I think the VR concept is um, awesome. And I definitely think that it's something that these leagues will want to do. It's a little bit like the 5G discussion when when you say that the, the leap forward to make it widespread is still pretty uh, big relative to the incremental willingness or ability to spend the install base of VR technology in people's homes. So it's going to take a while to get there, but, but I love it. The, I think VR, AR, which Snap is investing a lot in, obviously Facebook's investing a lot in, in VR. I think those are going to be really cool advances for the next generation of these sports broadcasts. Michael Morris, close us out. Any predictions? Do you think that this is this is definitely going to happen? HBO, Warner, Discovery, or is there another dark horse, white knight type bidder that's going to come in? I think this is the most likely outcome, honestly. I, my, my sense, uh, and you're always kind of putting some pieces together, is that both sides explored potential partnerships as this landscape keeps, keeps mm -hmm. evolving. Um, and this was the most elegant solution, if you will, for an AT&T that was looking to extract some cash, uh, a discovery business that was kind of unencumbered by any you know, sort of regulatory hurdles. This just feels like the, the most likely uh, combination to me. And then, you know, the, the sort of, I don't want to call it a scramble, uh, you know, but I do think that every media company has to now look at this global competitive landscape and say, do I have enough to make sure I'm competitive with these uh, what looks like a big three across Disney, Netflix, and, uh, and and this newly combined company. Michael Morris covers the internet and media and Hollywood landscape for Guggenheim Partners. Uh, sir, you're always welcome on this show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. And hello to our radio listeners in Washington, D.C., in Ventura, California, and down in Asheville, North Carolina, and coming soon back across the great state of Virginia. 
message me if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.